The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 and reading through verse 25. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brothers and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew man, one of his brothers. He looked this way and that, and seeing no man, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrew men were struggling together. And he said to the one in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a man, a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. They came home to their father, Ruel. He said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian man delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for this means of grace that you have given to us, for this instrument that you use to direct us in the faith, to show us Christ, to show us our calling in this world. Indeed, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you continue to guide us and direct us, that you give light for our paths, that you give you give a lamp for our feet to follow. Indeed, Use your words you've promised this day, and may your Holy Spirit help us to understand it more fully and deeply, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Almost 39 years ago to the day, Bonnie Tyler's hit song, Holding Out for a Hero, was released on April 13, 1984. It was part of the soundtrack for the movie Footloose. The song begins by asking, Where have all the good men gone, and where are all the gods? Where is the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? And then the, the chorus, I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong, and he's got to be fast, and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon. And he's got to be larger than life. Larger than life. The song is probably familiar to many of you, whether you're a fan of the original Footloose movie or have heard it in some other form or fashion in other movies or TV shows. The point of the song is pretty straightforward, even campy to a degree, though it seems to take itself semi-seriously, particularly when you watch the music video. But it expresses the basic idea of needing to be rescued, of needing to be saved. And in the, in the context of, of Bonnie Tyler's singing it, there's a damsel in distress and she's looking for a deliverer. 
And that's related to a theme we raised last week in our study of the latter part of chapter 1 and the first uh, 10 verses of Exodus 2. There are references to daughters all over the place. And that continues in our text this morning when we're rather suddenly introduced to the seven daughters of the priests of Midian in verse 16. And the question we raised last week, who's going to rescue the daughters, gets answered at least in part, though there's some fascinating things going on in our text, some ironies, some clear allusions allusions back to Genesis, of course, and some details that may not be quite what they appear at first glance, particularly when tested against other passages of Scripture. So let's begin to delve into what's before us today, even as the Holy Spirit would direct our faith from this text to the risen and victorious Christ and the life of faith in which we are directed to walk. Now the first scene is found in verses 16 to 22, and we're clearly in Egypt and are informed in verse 11. And it was in those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brothers and saw their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew man one of his brothers. Now, a couple of things. Uh, The theme of seeing, of looking upon, or seeing is is present again. Uh, The same word used in the next verse, um, and then again, the same word is used in the next verse, and then again in verse 24. So Moses sees, and he makes a judgment. That's what seeing in Scripture entails. Also, we have the first two of seven uses of the word man in verses 11 to 22. Gets somewhat obscured in our English translations, but you might recall the sevenfold use of child in the previous section. So going from child to man is mildly interesting. But notice that Moses goes out to his brothers. What does that indicate to us? That Moses identifies himself with the Hebrews, with the sons of Israel. Yes, he's an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Yes, he's a prince of Egypt. But he clearly isn't being portrayed as holding on to that culture. Quite the opposite, in fact. Now, a piece of information that we do well to glean from another part of Scripture at this point is to note that Moses is 40 years old when this sequence of events takes place. Stephen explicitly states this to be the case in his sermon in Acts 7. And that helps us to understand that Moses isn't some young, immature man who is a hothead acting rashly. No, 40-year-old Moses is in view here, and he sees the beating that's taking place from an Egyptian man upon a Hebrew man, one of his brothers. Perhaps this is one of the slave bosses or princes put over Israel in chapter 1. The mention of Moses seeing their burdens takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 11, where the same word is used of Israel's increased affliction under the king of Egypt. Verse 12, he turned this way and that, and not seeing a man, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, how we understand this sequence is a bit tricky to piece together. Perhaps Moses waited until this particular Egyptian was done beating the Hebrew before killing him. Or maybe he was very close to killing the Hebrew and Moses intervened. But it doesn't appear that the Hebrew was killed. So then, was Moses wrong for killing the Egyptian? Does he take it too far? Plenty of scholars want to contend that he did, but we do well to go to Stephen's sermon again to help us with the interpretation. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. See, Stephen portrays Moses as in the right in his actions, and therefore so should we. Perhaps the best reading is that it was clear that the Egyptian man wouldn't stop beating the Hebrew man until he was dead, and so Moses comes to his rescue and is justified in killing the Egyptian. Could be. But still, we have Stephen's testimony 
where we can rest and be fine with what the text is telling us. And more on some of this in a moment. But what what does Moses do? Well, he buries the Egyptian in the sand. Certainly to a a degree he's getting rid of the evidence. But here's an instance in which we begin to see a pattern emerge of what happens first with Moses happens later with Israel. To hear Moses buries one Egyptian in the sand. What happens in chapter 14 at the Red Sea crossing? Pharaoh and a whole army of Egyptians get buried, don't they? We'll come back to this. But this could help us, this should help us as we come into verses 13 and 14. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrew men were struggling together, and he said to the one in the wrong, the wicked one, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you for a man, a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Now there's quite a bit here, but let's begin by asking the question, Is Moses a prince and judge over them? The answer is yes. According to his station within Pharaoh's house, Moses is a prince and judge. But God also appointed Moses as a prince and judge, as we're instructed again from Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. He, Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Stephen clearly tells us that Moses understood that he was appointed as Israel's deliverer and his killing of the Egyptian was in keeping with that understanding. But what does the wicked Israelites' response indicate? Well, the state of his heart, his spiritual disposition, his sin in being called out, and he turns around and projects evil upon Moses and won't listen to what Moses has to say. What's more, he is representative of the whole people of Israel who aren't ready to be delivered, remaining stubborn in their sin. You know, we we should ask the question, are they still clinging to their idols despite the oppression they're enduring? Fundamentally, what we have here is the first instance of the people rebelling against Moses. In number 16, we read about Korah's rebellion. What was their main contention? Who put you in charge? Even before that, in Numbers 12, you have basically the same thing from Aaron and Moses, Moses' Moses' own siblings. And what do we have here in Moses but a deliverer rejected by his own people, a people clinging to their sins, even as it would be the case for Jesus and the Israel of his day. See, Moses' experience points forward to Christ's experience. Still more, consider the context of Stephen's sermon. He's speaking to fellow Jews, even the high priest, proclaiming Christ, calling them to repentance, exhorting them that they're stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit. And what do they do to Stephen? They kill him. They stone him, further evidencing the sin of Israel in that generation, who also called out for the crucifixion of Christ, rejecting the Deliverer, the hero whom God had sent. Well, the next part of the verse tells us that Moses was afraid and that the thing was known. And then in verse 15, that Pharaoh heard about it and sought to kill Moses. And so Moses skedaddled to Midian. Now, Stephen tells us at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. In Hebrews 11, we read, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him 
who is invisible. Now, when we read the Exodus account, we readily think Moses is afraid of Pharaoh, and so he flees. But that's not what the text says. And Hebrews explicitly states that Moses wasn't afraid of the king. Is this a clear contradiction? Did the Holy Spirit make a mistake? No, of course not. And what the writer to the Hebrews is helping us to understand is that if you read this portion of Exodus as though Moses is a murderous fugitive on the run from the king, then you're misreading it. Moses' departure was an act of faith, Hebrews 11.26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Matthew Henry notes this. Moses did this out of a prudent care for his own life. God ordered it for wise and holy ends. Things were not yet ripe for Israel's deliverance. The measure of Egypt's iniquity was not yet full. The Hebrews were not sufficiently humbled. So Moses' life is under threat and he leaves. Well, who does that remind us of in Genesis? Jacob. And there are more Jacob connections that we'll see momentarily. But let's return to the Moses first and Israel pattern we noted a little bit ago and see that that there's a head and a body theme, head-body theme that is being established. So we have to think about this, that what happens to Israel, Moses experiences first. Moses goes into the Nile River. Hebrew boys were killed there. Moses delivered out of the river, out of the water. Israel will be delivered through the Red Sea. Moses' mother gets money from Pharaoh's daughter. She gets wealthier. Israel gets wealthier when they leave Egypt. As already mentioned, Moses killing the Egyptian and the death of Pharaoh and the Egyptian army parallel. And Israel rebels against Moses here and then later in the wilderness. Pharaoh drives out Moses here, in a sense. The next Pharaoh drives out Israel. Moses goes to Midian, to the wilderness for 40 years. Israel has a 40-year wilderness wandering. Even more, when Moses comes back to conquer Egypt, he circumcises his sons. Before Israel enters the promised land to conquer, they circumcise their sons. And we find the same pattern in the New Testament with Jesus and the church. Jesus goes first and we follow. Particularly when it comes to Luke and Acts, when we compare Jesus and Paul, Jesus has three ministry tours. Paul goes on three missionary journeys. Jesus stands before three different rulers or ruling bodies. So does Paul. False charges are brought against Jesus by the Jews. Same with Paul. Jesus dies for sins. Paul doesn't have to, though he will die for his faith. So the patterns are there. And we see it, and when we see them, it can help us more properly understand what's going on in the narrative. Well, the first section closes telling us that Moses fled from Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he dwelt by a well. Now, as careful biblical scholars and readers, the writer telling us that Moses ended up by a well should cause us to be able to make a pretty good guess about what happens next, to some degree. But before we get into the details of the second section, verses 16 to 22, where was Midian and what's its significance? Midian was east of Egypt on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. And so we should already make the connection that the route that Israel travels after the Exodus is already well known to Moses. He's taken it before and probably even lived and worked in some parts of it. But we should also note that Midian comes from the line of Abraham and was one of the sons born to him from his wife Keturah, whom he married after the death of Sarah. So Moses ends up with some descendants of Abraham, but they're clearly not 
the priestly people. They're not of Israel. They're still outsiders for all intents and purposes, though we should probably understand them to be Gentile God-fearers. At other times, there are bad Midianites, but these are some of, of the good ones. Well, in verse 16, we're told there's a priest in Midian who has seven daughters and they're shepherdesses. And they come to the well to water their flocks and they get the water in some troughs and then a bunch of shepherds come and drive them away. Maybe the shepherds were looking to exploit the work of the daughters had done in order to water their own flocks. Regardless, they're a bunch of no-good ruffians. Again, meeting women at a well is nothing new. We have some clear echoes to Jacob again. Where did he meet Rachel? By a well. What was she? A shepherdess. And Jacob helped water her flock. The meeting between Rebekah and Abraham's servant who was sent to get a bride for Isaac took place at a well. See, women and wells go together. So young single men, if you're looking for a wife, go hang out at a well. Well, not quite. But, but that, that's the pattern we find in, in Scripture. Of course, what familiar story do we find in John 4? Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman by the well. Whose well? Jacob's. And what's one of the topics of conversation? Husbands. And how many she's had, which may not have been entirely her fault. Though the man she was presently with wasn't her husband. But part of what Jesus is offering to her, besides living waters, another association with the Holy Spirit, is to be a true husband. So when we read John 4, we should have all of these previous women and wells encounters in our minds in order to better understand what's going on and what Jesus is doing. Well, back to Exodus 2 and what happens next. And Moses rose up and saved them and watered their flock. As David declares in Psalm 68, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. So Moses arises and scatters these shepherds. And Moses cuts a pretty impressive figure here, single-handedly taking on these shepherds. Of course, we don't know how many there were, but this still reveals something about his character. You know, Moses exercises a measure of compassion and comes to the rescue of his Hebrew brethren in the, in the previous section and is rejected here he comes to the rescue of some Gentile gals and is accepted, even as we go on to read. Maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but notice the progression. Moses delivers, and then he provides water. Where does that pattern come up again? The exodus from Egypt, and the, the water from the rock in the wilderness. And that rock is whom? It's Christ, as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10.4. What about for us? What might the connection be for us? Well, Christ is our deliverer, of course, but then what's the water? It's the Holy Spirit, which we can piece together based on Ezekiel 47, John 7, and John 19, to name a few passages. See, Calvary leads to Pentecost. Now, we've mentioned a couple of associations between Moses and Jacob, but there are connections to Joseph as well. What happened to him? He was rejected by his brothers, had an encounter with Midianites, and was accepted by Egyptians, and then marries the daughter of a priest. Moses is rejected by his brothers, finds himself in Gentile Midian, is accepted, and marries the daughter of a priest. These things aren't, aren't accidental. So the daughters go home to daddy, to Ruel, whose name means God's shepherd or God's friend. And he inquires how they're back so quickly, and they tell him, an Egyptian man delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, 
and even drew water for us and watered the flock. You were told again what Moses did for them, but notice that they identify him as an Egyptian man. Moses would have looked the part clean-shaven, maybe even a shaved head, another reminder of, of Joseph who appeared to be an Egyptian to his brothers. But there's some irony in this identification because who does Moses really identify with according to the previous section? The Hebrews. Ruel wants to know, where is he? Where have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. What is Ruel Ruel offering to Moses? Table fellowship. Which means he considers Moses a friend. Again, Moses is more kindly received by these Midianites than his own people. And that's part of the point and the theology of the text. Perhaps the explicit mention of bread echoes again to the Joseph story. It might also be worth remembering Abram's experience with Melchizedek, who provided the patriarch with bread and wine. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior, perhaps, but interesting to think about. So then how does this section close out? And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So this fittingly ends with a wedding, after a manner of speaking. You know, the hero gets the girl. The name Zipporah means warbler or chirper, so it has some association with bird, with the word for bird, and the name Gershom means stranger or foreigner. Now, the naming of a son here parallels the naming of Moses back in chapter 2 and verse 10, but Gershom isn't a new name, even though it, it does speak to Moses' experience. The patriarch Levi also had a son named Gershom. So there's a sense in which it's already a family name since Moses is from the tribe of Levi. But the writer is giving us a clear sense that Moses is settling into his life in Midian. He has a wife and son. He'll eventually have another son as we later find out. He's content to be there and remains in Midian for 40 years as Stephen informs us. Which also helps us better understand Moses' encounter with the Lord at the burning bush in chapter 3 which hopefully we'll consider next week. But then we have the final three verses of chapter 2 to consider our final section for today. Verse 23. And it came to pass in those many days the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned under their hard service, and they cried out for help, and came up their cry to God from hard service. The word for slavery or hard service is the same one used back in chapter 1 and verse 14. And while there might have been hope for a reprieve with a change of kings, that wasn't the case. The next king held to the same policies of oppression. And the text is clear to state that Israel's hard service was the cause of their crying out to God, that it came up to him. And then in the last two verses, we're told that God does four things. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the sons of Israel. God knew. And where verse 23 leaves off, 24 picks up, and God hears their groaning. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that God was unaware of what was happening to Israel uh, as the omniscient God. But this is covenantal language. This is expressive language that God is really paying attention to Israel's plight. You know, if I command you, listen, listen, pay attention. I have more of your attention. You're more on the alert, more attuned to what's being said. And that seems to be the sense here. 
God remembers his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Once again, we're back to the patriarchs in Genesis, as we should be. But all of those promises still hold true, still have power, still have bearing for God's chosen people. And God's remembering indicates he's ready to act. And let's not forget part of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God hasn't forgotten, and the fulfillment of this promise and covenant is what's drawing closer to pass. Verse 25, And God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew. Who saw the sons earlier in the chapter? Moses. Who sees them now? God. See, Moses was doing his part in acting as deliverer, but Israel wasn't ready for him, not really. But with the passing of more time under the oppression of their slavery, the time for deliverance is ripening. And God knew. Again, this is covenantal language. This is relational language. It's not that... It's not that somehow the all-knowing God was unaware of Israel's plight in Egypt, but the text is written in this anthropomorphic way to describe these events. Moses sees and is moved to compassion, moved with compassion for his brothers, even to the point of avenging them. God sees, and he too will be moved by compassion for the sons of Israel. A compassion rooted in covenant faithfulness and the promises to the patriarchs founded upon God's very own character. How will God do it? What means will he use? Well, we'll have to keep reading to find out. So what are some further principles for us to consider in light of our text this morning? Well, first, let us be sure not to miss the warning that those who have privilege and blessing need to be aware. The sons of Israel are the people of promise. They're the people of the covenant who've been given God's word. And yet we find them hardened in their sin, taking for granted these gifts and going after idols. Likewise, as the church, we need to be wary and not take for granted the gifts that we've been given in Christ. The means of grace that are ours in the scriptures, in the preaching of the word, the status and identity that we receive at baptism, and the continuing nourishment to be received in the bread and the wine. Don't despise these gifts. Don't think they're ordinary or optional or insignificant and neglect them because you're so accustomed to them accustomed to them, or because they seem, well, so simple or foolish. They're privileges, blessings given to you by your God and King for your eternal benefit. And with such privilege comes responsibility. Ever responding in faith and obedience to these gifts in word and water and in bread and wine. Second, Jesus is our Savior out of Egypt. Just as the daughters of Ruel were delivered by an Egyptian man, likewise likewise we have been. Matthew's Gospel is clear, quoting Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. And that that phrase in in the context of Matthew has multiple levels of meaning. The allusions to Exodus in in Matthew 2 are many. But Christ has rescued us from the oppression and bondage of sin. He's delivered us from our enemies. The sting of death and the power of sin have been rendered impotent in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where our Savior has gone first, we follow. He is the trailblazer for our faith. 
And yes, that path took him to the cross, and we follow him in the same as his disciples, daily taking up our crosses in self-denial. But that path has led to an empty tomb and to the exaltation at the Father's right hand. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if he's the first fruits, what does that indicate? That there are second fruits, that there are later fruits to be gathered. Those who are in Christ, those who belong to him. We too will receive our resurrected bodies at the end. When the Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, having destroyed every rule and every authority and power. And that, that's the time in which we live now. That's what's happening now. That God the Father has put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ our King. Granted, this isn't an instantaneous, instantaneous process, but we're some 2,000 years into it, and the evidence of Christ's rule and reign are everywhere. And I know it's Resurrection Sunday and we're 40 days from Ascension and 50 to Pentecost. But having been delivered, our Savior out of Egypt, our Ascended King, has provided us with water, even the Holy Spirit Himself. What does this mean? What does this indicate? What does this teach us about our calling as the people of God? Well, as was true of Christ the head, so it's true of His body. And what Christ began, the church finishes, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we understand that new creation has begun in Christ, so that work continues through the church to all the nations. Earlier I made mention of Ezekiel 47 and John 7 and John 19. Well, we can go all the way back to Genesis 2 and see that this pattern is established. Now, where was the garden, the, san- the garden sanctuary in which God placed Adam and Eve? It was in Eden. And what significant detail are we given in verse 10 of Genesis 2? A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And when we think four rivers, we should make the association of them flowing in four different directions, even to the four corners of the earth, passing through land, lands where there's gold and precious stones to be found in keeping with man's calling to rule and subdue the earth. Then in Genesis 13:10, when Lot and Abraham decided to separate, what do we read? And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So the garden of the Lord was well watered. Let's piece a few things together. The garden of Eden was the sanctuary, and from it flowed the four rivers. In Ezekiel 47, we find the description of a river flowing out of the temple, another sanctuary. But this is symbolic imagery because there wasn't a physical river flowing through Jerusalem. No, what Ezekiel is prophesying is the Holy Spirit flowing out to the world, to the nations. And then he describes where the river flows, that all kinds of trees for food grow bearing fruit. What's that mean? That where the river flows, it's Edenizing the world. That it makes a garden sanctuary. That creation is being restored. And wherever it goes, the river brings life. Well, guess what? The waters, the river still flows out of the sanctuary, even the Holy Spirit, through the church. The Garden of Eden, the sanctuary was on a mountain. Water flows downhill. We gather on Mount Zion and in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then it's from this sanctuary that we flow down and out into the world producing life and fruit wherever we go. And perhaps you can just try to imagine each individual Christian as a, as a rivulet of water 
if there's a way to get a satellite picture of the location of every Christian in the world, we'd see streams of water everywhere in all of the nations of the world. Granted, there'd be more in some places than others, and that has changed over the centuries and will continue to change. But when we consider that the river began flowing out of the pure side of, of Christ upon Calvary, and then grew a little bit more when the Spirit rested upon the twelve in the upper room, and then grew to 3,000 later that day after Peter's sermon, and now to million upon millions, then surely there is great encouragement for us to continue steadfastly, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in Him is not in vain. Jesus, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Hero, has come, even in the morning light. So follow Him now to His table and partake of His abundant blessings in the bread and the wine. Follow Him from here and give yourself to the work He has set your hands to do, imparting life wherever you go and in whatever you do. Follow him to death and even in the grave. For there he has also gone ahead of you so that you need not fear. And he has transformed it into the means by which you're ushered into the life to come as he has promised. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word, for the marvelous way in which it is written and how you would impress it upon our hearts and lives. And may you do so more fully that we might more faithfully follow you and honor and glorify you in the lives that are lived before you. May we freshly cast ourselves upon Christ this day, giving you thanks for your abundant blessings in Him and for the Holy Spirit and for your means of grace and gifts to us. Indeed, Father, use us and help us, we pray, for the furthering of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.